Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He ko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Namihi nui and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance ahau. This week. We've got part two of a feature on the largest scientific study ever undertaken of New Zealand lakes. The Cawthorn Institute and GNS Science are collaborating on Lakes 380, which is looking at the health of our lakes and their catchments over a thousand-year period. We heard last week from Susie Wood how they are sampling 10% of New Zealand's 3,800 lakes. These range in size from small alpine and dune lakes to the mighty Lake Taupo. This week, I'm off to the National Isotope Centre at GNS in Lower Hutt to meet paleoecologist Marcus Vandergoes. Now, I gather I have arrived on moving day. <laughs> you have arrived on moving day. What happens is that when we collect sediment cores uh, from all around the country, they come back uh, to this location, um, to here in Lower Hutt, and we then uh, start to process them, but the main thing is they stay refrigerated or frozen um, the whole time after collection. So we have a number of large refrigerated shipping containers here on site that is the storage for these cores. Very quickly we've filled these up uh, with core material. We've got over 340 cores collected already, so we are now moving them from one of those uh, refrigerated containers to our larger refrigerated uh, containment system. So those 340 cores, how many lakes have they come from? Um, That's come from approximately 87 so far. And you've got, what, nearly 300 to go? We've got about 300 or so to go, yeah. That's a lot more cores coming your way. That certainly is. I think all up it's something like two and a half to three kilometres of mud that we will be collecting throughout this project. But it's exciting mud, isn't it? Oh, it's it's incredibly exciting. Um, It's a national scale snapshot of the lake condition and and how those lakes have got to their present state. That we're going back a thousand years using the lake and the mud at the bottom of that lake basically as a storybook of how that lake has changed or maybe it hasn't changed, um, but how it's got to its present condition in time. Fantastic. Can we go for a closer look? Certainly we can. This is... So that there's a container with its doors open here, I presume these are the ones that are moving, and it's full of boxes that I work in an office and if we need a fluorescent light tube changed, it's a box that looks a bit like that. It certainly is. So these are um, specifically designed to hold the cores that we collect. 
we cut them into lengths of, of one metre for transport, but they're nine centimetres in diameter. We've specifically designed them to hold this to make them easy to transport and easy to stack in here. And as you can see, the container, uh, it's got shelving down one side and that contains all those cores stacked up on those shelves. We've also, you can see there's a number of um, coding systems on those core boxes. I was going to say, I hope you have a good coding system. <laughs> yep, that's, so basically that uses, you know, the barcode, the QR code system. It's all referenced to our database so we know exactly where those cores are and we also know what's been sampled from them and where those samples have been sent to because it's a huge effort to analyse all of these. Uh, lots of different institutes around New Zealand but internationally as well and we are sending samples all around the place to get analysed for different things and uh, we need to keep track of that. So are you chopping the core up into bits when you do that? How does that work? So the core gets split down the middle of it um, and then opened up like a book and then from there we take samples. We do chop it up or we use little scoops to pull samples out of those cores. So are you keeping one half intact? We take four cores from every site we go to. One of them is um, put aside straight away for long-term archive and uh, the other three are used for analysis. So we always have one half of each core we open up that stays as intact as possible so that we can keep it there as an archive. Um, Over time, parts of that will get used, but the long-term archive that we've set aside right from the beginning is is the one that we can have go back to all the time. So that long-term archive, what temperature do you store that at? Most of the cores here are stored at um, around three degrees, three and a half degrees, just to keep... It's a big refrigerator. Um, The Long-term archives, though, are stored at minus 20. They're frozen, so they're frozen for um, long-term storage, and that allows us to preserve uh, mud and the cores, particularly for analysis that is time-sensitive, like the environmental DNA and a number of other analyses in that way. Yeah, you don't want it to keep on doing whatever it is that it normally does at the bottom of the lake. No, exactly. A key thing we're looking at in this work is things like uh, bacteria and how bacteria have changed um, through time and, and so, you know, those bacteria are living and present in the core right now um, so the only way to stop those being there is by freezing the core. Is there a bit of a core that we can have a look at? Yes, yeah, certainly. We can come into the lab here and have a go. This part of GNS is our a core sampling facility and core scanning facility specifically set up for this project. The scale of the work we're doing here, we need to have constant access to a laboratory that we can come in, sample the core, uh, process it and taking the samples and then refrigerating or freezing it and then also continuing on with Uh, scanning the cores because some of the first things we do is we get a scan of the core, a high resolution image of the core and I'll show you that uh, later on. So we've come into a room with a very fancy piece of equipment that I'm going to get you to explain. (laughs) So this is our core splitting system. You lay the core tube on top of of it here and um, ultimately it's got two little multi-tools that vibrate their blades and you run those uh, down the side of the core on each side. That's followed then by two sharp blades that cut through the rest of the plastic and ultimately you can also have a wire that follows it too that cuts through the mud. What happens then is that we then open up those cores, split them open by running a a large uh, guillotine-like stainless steel blade through it 
and then we can open up those cores and, and look at them. And here are some here on the on the countertop. Ta-da! <laughs> and here's something we prepared <laughs> some earlier. Some we prepared earlier, indeed. Well, they're beautiful and marbled and striped. Yep, definitely. So these are three different cores from um, work we completed uh, a few months ago now in the Rotorua region. So we have some cores here from Lake Okaro, uh, Lake Rotoiti, and Lake Rotoehu. And I think you can. And they're see very different. They are all very different. Some things they do all have in common, though, is some sort of representation of volcanic activity in that area. Well, the one over the far side, Lake Rotoehu, has got a big pile of grit in the middle. Yep, um, that's a, a very dark grey, black sort of gravelly looking material yep and that is the volcanic ash um, and, and the volcanic eruptive deposit from Mount Tarawera when it erupted in 1886. Wow. So that gives us a very strong marker in time to be able to look at the changes that have happened in this lake and in the catchment around the lake and look at it before then and after then to see how that history has changed if it's changed. And the other two don't have that they were far enough away. Well, actually, they have it represented in a different way. Oh, okay, show me that. So this one here from Lake Okaro, you can see, as you've said, it's a very marbled, different colour going from grey with sand in it to a sort of an olivey brown with, with dark layers of sand and silt in it and then going very brown lake mud. Right up to here, so for almost 65 centimetres of this core that we're looking at, which is around one metre long, all of this mud here is what we're currently interpreting as related to mud that has come out of the Tarawera eruption. So comparing it to the other core where we've got a five centimetre band and it looks almost like gravel, at this site that eruption is characterised by big thick mud deposits. So what happened do you think? Basically this is quite close to where Mount Tarawera is and the historical accounts and also when you dig actually through the landscape there, um, metres and metres of mud, um, big lahar-like flows and eruptive deposits um, spread over that area and blanketed the landscape. And there are historical photos of people, you know, standing um, uh, on that mud, um, but also villages buried by it as well. Um, it was a significant impact for iwi in the, in the region at that time. I think there was over 100 lives you know, lost as a result of that eruption. So it's a very significant event, not only in geological time and in, in the landscape in that area, but also for humans in that area. And so that means that there's about another 40... Yep centimetres of mud on top of that, that's all happened, you know has happened since then. Exactly. So, you know, this allows us to use that mud to look at the changes that have occurred in that lake um, since that eruption. So one thing is, how has that lake responded? That eruption has basically reset that lake from what it was previously. It's given it an opportunity to reset anyway. So how has that lake the ecosystem within that lake responded to such a dramatic event in the first place. That's the first thing we can we can look at from these. The second thing then is that once it's stabilised, what condition was it in? What sort of water quality, health was it in? What was the ecosystem that you know that was living in there? So aquatic plants, zooplankton, phytoplankton, invertebrates, things like that. What was living in there at that time, and how might that have changed as the landscape has changed after that with say more farming or forestry in the area and that kind of thing so if they've had an effect on the lake um, or if they haven't or what's what sort of changes have occurred through that time. Those signs of what might have lived there in terms of plants and animals 
what evidence do you see of that in the core? Is it just the eDNA that you're looking for, or do you find sort of more macro stuff? No, definitely. The eDNA is the great place to start because it gives us a very good overview of some of those things that are in there, like the bacteria and so on, which are key for starting off some of that ecosystem. But ultimately, as plants and and insects, things like uh, little midges, um, they fly in very quickly onto a water body, they lay their eggs, and soon you get all those sorts of things growing in there as well. And we find the remains of those um, within the mud. So there are little, little skeletons almost there, um, the remains of some of the mouth parts of the insects or the head, head capsules of the larva that are, um, remain in the mud. They're made up of chitin, like your fingernail, and they preserve in the mud. We also get little fragments of plants, such as leaves or stems that are in there, so that can be aquatic plants or it can be leaves from vegetation around the catchment. And we also then get things like pollen uh, from the vegetation as well and spores and pollen from the plants that are living in the lake. And they're prolific in this sort of mud. So we only need a tiny small amount of mud to look at the pollen that's come from the the trees and the plants around the lake to um, come up with a reconstruction of what that whole lake and the catchment look like through time. So to find those things, somebody has to painstakingly sift through all of this under a microscope? Yep, um, it's a mixture of microscope work and picking things out, yep. So the pollen is analysed by taking a piece of mud and uh, doing some processing to it and looking at it under a microscope and, and then counting the different types and you know pinning them to the different types of trees such as, say, rimu trees or pine trees or things like that or grasses uh, indicating agriculture, that kind of thing. The invertebrate remains, yep, they have to be picked out of the sample and mounted on on a slide and then analysed so we can look at the different types of invertebrates from the remains in there but also try and look for their DNA trapped in the mud as well. Now just looking at this lovely one from Lake Okaro, near the top of it there's very narrow bands which tend to go from dark to light and then back to dark. Are those... Years, decades, seasons, do you have any idea? Right now it's hard to tell. Often that some of those can be seasonal if they're preserved well enough. That's sort of where another technique that we're using comes in. We've got a a high-resolution core scanning facility just in the next room here, and that takes an image of the core as detailed as about 40 micron in pixel size. And we can really get down into understanding the significance of those layers, trying to understand whether they represent seasonal changes or multi-year changes, um, and try and characterise what those changes are. Because this scanner, it uses near-infrared and infrared light, so it's just like satellite imagery, basically. And just like satellite imagery, where they use it to look at different types of vegetation with the uh, the absorption of the chlorophyll, That's what we're doing on this core as well. So we can scan this core and reconstruct the chlorophyll that's been trapped in the core as an indicator of productivity, either within the lake or around the catchment. So we can start to really uh, interrogate those layers and understand what they mean in that way. What is it about these cores that you like? I think, as I said earlier on, you know, these to me are the storybook of the lake. They all have their own story here, and you can see how different they are. There are things in their points in time that are similar, but each one is going to tell its own story. Whether they've all responded in the same way or whether they haven't, you know, we know from going to many lakes around the country that. You know, some of them are highly productive, they may have low water quality, yet one right next to it might be quite different. And trying to understand 
why that has happened so that we can inform how we might manage those systems or how we might protect those ones that aren't changing and, and understand what the drivers are behind it. So that thousand years that you're looking at, that's going to give you pre-human in New Zealand, it's going to give you Māori occupation and then European occupation. Yep, exactly. The whole point of doing that was to try and get that natural baseline record of what the lake has been doing, but also have the opportunity there to see how naturally occurring events have influenced the lake, such as things like the volcanoes, um, earthquakes, things like that, climate change uh, to a degree. But then, yep, we can see what that natural baseline ecosystem is and how, how it's been maintained for a while, whether it might have had any of its own natural variability in there of water quality change through time. You know, there's a good chance that some of these lakes have always been varying in their water quality. But then to see how human impact may have had a role in changing these lakes and how um, the lakes have changed to landscape change as well. How do you work out what water quality was? Is that based on the kind of plants and animals that are living there? Like if you have a high nutrient lake, you get a certain kind of ecosystem and that's going to be your marker. Yep, there are certain things like that. So there are indicators in the bacteria, for example, we can pick up the the DNA, environmental DNA of cyanobacteria and, and toxic algae within these lakes. So we can see how those have varied through time, whether they were always in the lake or whether they've just become more abundant now. So those are some key signs of water quality there. But again, the whole purpose of this study, it's not just about necessarily the water quality, it is all about that whole ecosystem health. So those other indicators of water quality and ecosystem health, you know, whether it's diversity of um, the diatoms, the little you know, algal representations in there, um, or the invertebrates that are in there as well. So we use all of those together um, and those indicators of productivity to understand water quality health and ecosystem health. Now you mentioned scans there. Have you got an image of a scan we can yeah, look at? Yeah, certainly. So um, one of them is actually of one of these cores that we've just uh, looked at here. Oh, fantastic. So we've come through into the scan room. Once the core is split and we've cleaned down the surface so we can see it a lot clearer, we then bring it into our um, core scanning room here. So this is our uh, hyperspectral um, scanner. So it, it uses lots of different spectrum, um, vis visible and near-infrared light spectrum. And when the core gets scanned by that, it gathers all of that infrared data from the core, so the absorption of those different light layers um, and it produces a very detailed, high-resolution image of the core. But what we can then do is that a lot of those wavelengths, those light bands, uh, are absorbed by certain things within the mud. And as I said before, it's like the satellite imagery, and when you um, use the satellite imagery to look at vegetation change, all the different types of vegetation have a different signature, a different heat colour. Um, so we use the same principles here. And one of them, for example... Uh, the light bands between 660 and uh, 670 nanometers is particularly representative of chlorophyll and the remains of chlorophyll uh, trapped within the mud. And we can use that as a broad indication of productivity change, either within the lake or within the catchment around the lake. And here in front of us here is a, a scan of the core that we're looking at. So we can see from the bottom, we can see where that volcanic ash layer is, and we can see it coming right up to the top, right to the present day. And it covers just over 700 millimetres. Yeah, and we can see the changes in the representation of the chlorophyll uh, through time. 
clearly there's no chlorophyll present um, during that eruption layer. Um, it was a very instantaneous event and nothing <laughs> was growing at that time. Um, but we can see leading into that, we can see that there's a range of changes within the relative abundance of, of um, chlorophyll uh, trapped in, in the lake. So on your index it's between 1.1 and 1.2, but it's, it's reasonably steady. Yep, it is. Um, I mean that's a relative index, so what we also have to do then is um, use more sample specific measurements um, uh, on some of our other instruments to calibrate this and quantify this. But So this is all a relative index. But as we can see coming um, after that volcanic eruption, the Tarawera eruption, we can see that the lake continues to infill and, and the productivity levels pretty much return to what they were before the eruption for mm -hmm. a period of time. There's some fluctuations in there and we need to find out what those are uh, related to. But then there's a certain point in time, about 20 centimetres uh, from the top of the core, where that chlorophyll signature just goes crazy. It does, it changes really quickly. Yep. It's almost on an uh, order of magnitude probably two or three times in relative, uh, relative to what was there previously. Which is showing that there's lots more chlorophyll? Yep, there's which, a lot more which chlorophyll. Which is suggesting more nutrients? There's, uh, suggesting it can be nutrient driven. Um, again, the challenge is to figure out whether that's from um, chlorophyll coming from the catchment or from within the lake. There's another one of these spectral bands, one of these light bands that we can use that is quite well representative of the bacteria in the lake. So if we see the same sort of pattern in there, then that's what we can use to figure out whether it's mainly bacterial productivity or algal productivity within the lake rather than things coming in from the vegetation around the side. And um, one of those is actually on the computer screen here and it basically mimics that. So our interpretation at this stage is that a lot of that productivity is within lake productivity and that's around the time, whatever that time is, when that changed. And that's probably responding to land use changes and intensified farming, things like that in the catchment maybe? Those, those are things that we then go and investigate um, and that is part of this whole national scale uh, study is to identify what some of the key drivers are in these different lake systems. Um, yep, you know, land use intensification is definitely one, but there are also things too that we've seen from some other sites, like even the introduction of uh, exotic fish species have a, a massive impact on some of these ecosystems where they might take out some of the zooplankton, um, feeding on some of the zooplankton that would normally control some of these algal productivity uh, blooms and things like that. There are lots of possibilities and that's sort of our job to try and come up with uh, what some of those possibilities are. In terms of trying to work out when things happened, what are some of the clues you've got? There are a number of clues we can use, and that's where things like the pollen um, from the plants is incredibly important to us, because things such as pine pollen or willow pollen give us a, a precise point in time that we can uh, recognise because we know from historical records when pine plantations were planted in a region um, such as around say Rotorua where you've got the big you know, Kaingaroa forests and things like that or further say down in the South Island when people started to plant willows trees around the lake edges and um, that kind of thing. So that's a key marker for us to be able to say we know that might be 1910 and we can then work out the changes before and after that time frame. We can also use other things such as within the environmental DNA such as the bacteria. We've found um, some bacteria that are quite closely associated with the stomach contents of introduced fish species such as trout or perch. And when we first see that come into the core, uh, be represented in the core, we can get an idea that that may have been when fish were either 
released into that lake or uh, made their own way into that lake system. So we've got a time component in there as well. The big message though is that, and I keep hearing it as I go around the country with different stories, is that we've always tended to look at rivers or look at lakes as if they're something in isolation and they're not something in isolation, they exist in quite a big catchment. Yeah, definitely. Rivers have had quite a bit of focus in the past as well, um, and they're all connected, they're all in the catchment. They should be looked as combined system, but being able to historically look back in time in a river system is a lot harder than in a lake because we have this you know, beautiful record, this storybook in the mud at the bottom of the lake, whereas the river often is always changing. You'll get mud building up there too, but often it's eroded away too, so you don't get that continuous story through time. So the lakes can also act as a tie point for the whole catchment in some ways if there are rivers feeding into it. But they shouldn't be necessarily seen in isolation. Clearly, you know, a a big part of the outcome of this is that this all feeds into things like catchment management plans that people are trying to come up with, and that includes um, farmers, regional councils, iwi as well. You know, all of them have that sort of interest in understanding and managing their catchments. So you talk about each of these cores being a bit like a book. To me, they're like an encyclopedia. <laughs> and you've got quite a big set of encyclopedias yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, actually. Um, you know, it's, it's as much or as little as you want to delve into them. They could be the equivalent, you know, of a five-page children's storybook where you, where you just get a quick, brief overview of what's going on. But for a number of these sites, we have a number of research questions that we're trying to answer that we do have to take an encyclopedic view of it. And this sort of data is at such high resolution, like this core scanning data is at such high resolution um, that it's masses of data that will be there for you know, for years to come and to be analysed and, and unpicked. So while we are doing this study, we're also providing a, a massive data set um, and an archive of this material to be used in the future, and that's a key part of what we're trying to do too. Thanks, Marcus. That was Marcus Vandergoes from GNS Science. And you can find the story again as well as last week's Lakes 380 interview with Cawthron Institute scientist Susie Wood at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Don't forget we are a podcast, available on your favourite podcast app, and you can find us and many other great RNZ podcasts, including Elemental, at the podcast tab on rnz.co.nz. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.